You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nachumsegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Mata guest with you, and uh, today is the 11th of February, the 26th of Shvat. Thanks uh, to all of you for joining me this morning here on another live edition of JM Sunday. Appreciate it. Temperature outside our area, it's a little bit better than it's been, but it's rainy all day today. Right now, 45 degrees, going up to a high of 49 and uh, dipping down to 38 tonight over Shabbos. It was raining, and today it's going to rain all day and uh, into the night. But it's okay. Better than snow, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> In Jerusalem, it's uh, cloudy, but it's 65 degrees, going down to 48 degrees in uh, a number of hours this evening. Hope you all had a great week. If you're studying Dafyomi, Avodah Zarah, of Zion, 27 today. And uh, always uh, always able to jump on if you want, whenever you want. I have a guest this morning. He'll be joining me at about 8.30, Roman Schmulenson. He's the executive director of COGECO, which is uh, the central coordinating body of uh, the Russian-speaking Jewish community in New York. Uh, they also have programs in New Jersey, so we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about that at, uh, in the second hour, about 8.30, an hour and a half from now. Wherever you're listening around the world, we are at the top of the hour in uh, in our show, 7.06, and we'll play a bunch of music, as we always do. Rabbi Gowasser at 7.30, and uh, the News from Israel at 8 o'clock, in about an hour from now. And uh, that's where we're at, so let's get right to the music, as we always do. We'll start off with Yaakov Shweki, right here on JM Sunday. Say 
מוחמד של קיגל במרבד. יום חמישי כבר מחכה לשישי, לא עובר לי הזמן, בראש עוד בלאגן. מתי כבר שבת שהמוח קצת ינחת? לא עוד עבודה, לא עוד סתם סעודה. זהו יום מנוחה, קבע את השם בבריאה. זה יום פעולה, תורה ומנוחה, משפחה קדושה והמון מנוחה. הרג עם ציבלה אחרי התפילה. לשמיים על הילדים היא מתפללת ועל הבעל מתכוונת שתהיה המשפחה שמחה ומייחדת. טס לבית הכנסת חכמה שהשקיעה נופלת להספיק את התפילה לבוא רעב לסעודה. החמים והג'ולנס מקודש קודשים שאכלו היהודים כבר כמה אלפי שנים. תשעית ועדות נעשה חובה ביהדות. השטיבון והשוני שזה מה זה קול. אז נשמור את השבת והשבת תשמור עלינו. זה גם לא סתם חלום, זה סיפור על צדיק שלמד תורה בלי להפסיק. זהו יום חגיגי למחרת חמישי, הפיוטים, הריחות, דברי תורה והזמירות, חדשות מיותרות בעיתונים, סתם שטויות, במיץ עגבניות. יש תקציצות, היא נשמה יצרה מעולם הבריאה. יהודים יקרים, שבת המלכה נותנת מנוחה עם אור ושלווה. לא סתם סופש למי שנואש, מי שהכין לשבת יאכל בשבת, מי שהכין לשבת יאכל את הקיגל מהמחבת.
Shuebel Sharf and Levine, Kiva Simcha here on JM Sunday. Before that, we heard the Chavra. We heard from Lipa, Simply Tzvat, Shlomo Katz, and Yaakov Shvaki. Since we started our show this morning, we'll get to Rabbi Goldwasser in just a moment. Reminder, the great programming continues all day long here on the network. We'll have a live lunch encore with Avrami at 11 o'clock. And then a Saturday night Siegel encore with Avrami at 1 o'clock. Great Jewish music throughout. 
A court report encore with Elliot Weiselberg. That'll be at 7 p.m. tonight. His first run is on Tuesday nights. And now during this part of the season, he uh, does an encore at 7 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time here on the network. A lot to uh, talk about what's going on in Israel. Connor Julian will uh, fill us in on that at 8 o'clock, top of the hour, with the news, live news in English from Israel. I have a guest this morning. He'll be on in about an hour from now. His name is uh, Roman Shmulinson. He's the executive director of COJECO, which is a uh, central body uh, for organizations for the Russian-speaking Jewish community in New York. So we'll talk to him about uh, what goes on in the Russian Jewish community and uh, what his organization does. Looking forward to that. Seems to be something very interesting. Uh, so looking forward to that. Nachum will be back on tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, bright and early at uh, JM in the AM, followed by the Israel Show with Mayor Weingarten at 9 o'clock tomorrow. So we always look forward to that. At this time, each and every Sunday through Thursday, we will present to you Rabbi David Goldwasser, Rabbi Goldwasser's words, L'zecha Nishmas Ravzev, Rabbi Yosef Alevi and Esther Bas, Rabbi Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learn a fascinating piece in the Talmud. It once happened that the daughter of Nechunya, who was a famous digger of wells, once fell in to a deep pit with water. Nechunya used to dig these wells to ensure that there was always a lot of water available for the people who were being Olaregel, those going to Yerushalayim. They couldn't believe that Nechunya's daughter had fallen into the water, that same water that had always been used by Nechunya for good, for chesed. The people came and informed Bichanina ben Doisa about it. In the first hour, he said to them, she is well. In the second hour, he said to them, she is still well. In the third hour, he said, by now, she has been raised out of the pit. Indeed, they saw her walk in. They asked her, who brought you up? She answered, A ram came by, led by an old man. Rashi says that the ram was the Ayel Shal Yitzchak. The elderly man was Avraham Avinu. She was saved in the merit of Akedas Yitzchak. Interesting. They then asked, Rabbi Chanina ben Daisa, Are you a Navi? Are you a prophet? He said, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But I said, should something that a pious person trouble himself his entire life for become a michshol, an obstacle for his children? Rabacha said, nevertheless, we see that his son did die of thirst. As it says, his surroundings are turbulent. It teaches us that Hashem is medakte kechuta saira. Hashem is very careful with those who are tzaddikim. Tosos asked, how is it possible that Rabbi Chanina ben Doisa was so positive that the daughter of Nechunya was safe and sound? We see that at the end, in truth, his son died because of a lack of water. So what happened? In order to answer the question, Rav Shach cites an interesting Shita Mekubetzas, one of the great Mepharshim. It explains that Rabbi Chanina ben Doisa did not say these words with the absolute knowledge that nothing would happen to the daughter. However, 
He argued in front of Hashem on behalf of the entire family. And Hashem accepted his argument. Because that was the derech Hashem. That Hashem is maskim to the tzaddikim of the generation. Hashem will listen to their prayers. However, the incident with the son happened after the Ptira, after Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa had passed on. There was no one in the generation that could argue in the same way that Hanina could. From the words of the Shita Mekubetzes, we learned that only the greatest tzaddikim in Noshim Tzidkonios could argue in front of Hashem. Only those on the Madrega, on the level of Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa, could argue to be Ma'orer Rachamim, to inspire mercy. However, when Rabbi Hanina was no longer in this world, even though there was still a generation of Tanoim, no one could argue for the son of Nechunya. We see how great it is to have a tzaddik on the level of Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa. We also realize the far-reaching zuchuyos, the merits of the great Akedas Yitzchok. May the merits of Akedas Yitzchok shield over all of us at B'yas Goel until Mashiach will come. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
Here on JM Sunday, Matas one guest with you, top of the hour, and uh, we're going to get to the news from Israel momentarily with uh, Hannah Julian, and uh, we'll see what's going on in Israel in uh, the uh, in light of the uh, the downing of uh, of the airplane yesterday and the attack and the drone. So we'll find out all about that. Uh, in just a moment. Reminder, great programming continues all day long today. Here on the stream, we are, till, we are here until 9 o'clock. Then, uh, in addition to the great music played all day long on the network, we have a live lunch encore at 11, a Saturday night seagull encore at 1, and a court report encore with Elliot Weiselberg at uh, 7 o'clock tonight. Also, uh, about half an hour from now, I'll be joined by Roman Schmulensen. He's the executive director of Cogeco, which is a, a central, it's an umbrella organization um, that is uh, that supports the uh, integration of the Russian-speaking Jewish community into the greater American Jewish community. So we'll talk about that and the uh, member organizations that Cogeco represents. Right now, it's time for our news from Israel. Hannah Julian, Middle East news analyst and senior correspondent at JewishPress.com, joins us every Sunday morning to bring us up to date on the latest happenings in the state of Israel. Good morning, Hannah Julian. Good morning, Matis. Iranian and Syrian forces across Israel's northern border are reassessing their status this morning. That coming after one of Israel's largest attacks on Syrian territory since 1982. This began with an Iranian military stealth drone that infiltrated Israeli airspace in the north yesterday. Israel bombed 12 different targets on Saturday in response, including the Iranian T-4 airbase from which the drone was controlled near Palmyra. All told, four Iranian positions and eight Syrian sites were hit, including the main command and control bunker of the Syrian military. It was the most devastating aerial attack on Syria in decades, but Israel did not escape scot-free. Israeli pilots faced heavy anti-aircraft fire from the S-300 missile defense batteries that were given to Syria by Russia. One Israeli F-16 fighter jet, as you know, sustained a direct hit. Its pilots were forced to eject. One pilot badly injured. His navigator had less severe wounds, both taken to Rambam Hospital in Haifa. The navigator has since been released. He's recovering now at home. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke with him briefly and told him how proud he is and how proud the nation of Israel is. The pilot has been disconnected from the respirator. He is now breathing on his own at this point. He is now listed in fair and stable condition. 
UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called for an immediate de-escalation of violence following the clash in the north. Guterres said in a statement on Saturday after this took place that he's calling on all parties to exercise restraint. He also pointed out that the Syrian people are suffering through one of the most violent periods in nearly seven years of conflict. But so far, even with all of that, there are no immediate plans for the UN Security Council to convene any meetings over the issue, and that coming after Israel's ambassador to the United Nations Danny Danone specifically requested that the UN Security Council condemn the Iranian infiltration into Israeli airspace, which he called a provocation. Prime Minister Netanyahu told the weekly government cabinet meeting this morning that the Air Force dealt a serious blow to the armies of Iran and Syria. He said Israel has now made it clear to everyone that our rules of engagement have not changed in any way. He added that Israel will continue to strike back at any attempt to harm us. Intelligence Minister Israel Katz told Israeli Public Radio later in an interview that the fighter pilots caught Iran by surprise. They hit concealed targets, and he said it's going to take Iran some time to figure out just how Israel knew to hit those specific sites. Now, on a lighter note, if you can call it that, one of the pieces of an SA-5 missile that was fired at one of our fighter jets landed yesterday morning in the backyard of a family home in the Jezreel Valley. It landed at about 5.30 in the morning, so this was a few minutes after this attack. Noam, who lives at the address, described it as making a whistle as it came down. It made about half a turn before it landed with a loud noise, but no explosion. He called police to let them know that this thing landed in his backyard and then he just went off on his bike trip. That was it. Just, okay, it's landed in my backyard. Bye. And went another, off on his bike. <laughs> another uh, day in the life of an Israeli. <laughs> right. And the IDF said, oh, okay, well, don't worry about a thing. We're going to come and move it by nightfall. So don't worry. It'll be gone by the time you get home. <laughs> We're oh, just going to pick it up. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing that they're so used to this, unfortunately, or... Or it's just like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's We're just going to come pick up the trash. Don't yeah, worry about a yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I think here in the United States, if something like that happened, there would be a hundred different news vans out there. And you it would be a story about everything. And thank God nobody was injured by it, uh, you know, on the right. ground there. Yeah, but no injuries, but it, would be a, it would be a story that would involve everything from having someone talk about the velocity of a... <laughs> a piece that's coming in, and, and and you're saying, okay, you know, just come and pick it up, please. And, right, well, trash uh, collection. In oh the States, boy. you could sell tickets for a week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank God it wasn't more serious there, and, and thank that's God right. that the pilots, as you said, are uh, are doing, right. They're doing as well. well as can be you know, expected yeah. at this, uh, at yeah. this time. They're doing but, okay. Um, Thank God. We, they, it was touch and go there for a while yeah. with the, uh, but it was emergency surgery that got him in right away. Thank, thank God that they had to bail over Israeli territory. Oh, well, yeah, that was. Uh, That's the first crash of an F 16 since Ron Arad. Yeah, wow. So and, that would have been another. God, right. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. Thank God for that. Let's take a quick look at the weather before I let you go. Cloudy skies today, cooling off as the day goes on. We've had a beautiful week, but it's it's gone now. Light rain for the rest of the day. By, by late this afternoon, the party is over, mm. mostly cloudy <laughs> by nightfall. Um, we need the rain. We do. It's been a dry week. But uh, rain now in the north and central regions, and it's going to be cold again by tomorrow. Scattered showers in the northern and central regions. And by nightfall, that rain will be coming down to the south. Flash flood warnings in the southern and eastern Vadis. A chance of thunderstorms as well. And rain continuing into Tuesday. If you are hearing this broadcast in Israel, people bundle up. Winter is back. Well, have a great you, week. <laughs> you, you have, if I may ask, you, you, uh, we have rain here also in our New Jersey area, but our temperatures are in the mid-40s. You're in the mid-60s still well, for now. Yeah, but, well, for now. But once the rain starts, then it, it comes down immediately because rain, rain in Israel only comes if the temperature drops. Oh, okay. Rain is a winter rain, right. at, at least so far, unless we get a lot more global warming. But for now, if you have rain in Israel, then you have temperatures dropping at least into the mid to lower 50s in the Tel Aviv area. And anywhere else, it's usually to the low 50s or mid to upper 40s. So, yeah, winter's back. Right. Makes sense. <laughs> well, we're in time for uh, Rosh Kodesh this week. Uh you know, heralding in Adar, so um, it's a just in time seasonal, for another <laughs> seasonal change. Yeah. <laughs> Have a great week. Have a Chodesh Tov. Marbim Lusimcha. Yep. Be well. Have a great week. I'm Chana Julian for James Sunday. Thank you so much, Chana uh, Julian. We appreciate you joining us as always. We'll see you next week right here. On JM Sunday, exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're going to go back to the music. And joining me in about uh, 20 minutes uh, will be uh, my guest this morning, Roman Schmulenson, who is the executive director of Kojeka. We'll talk about the organization and what it does for the Russian Jewish community of New York and beyond. Here's Shlemy Daskal on JM Sunday. Moi di manach ni lo, moi di manach ni lo, moi di manach ni lo, shuatu i ashe melekai ni, melekai ya boi saidi. Oyal chayai ni am sidim biyudeichu, moi di manach ni lo, biyal nishmi saidi ya bek
Ophinat with the Yussis uh, times two. <laughs> Before that, Ohad with um, Mashkimian by request. Thank you for that Ohad request, and uh, that came from the um, from the app. And uh, just want to make sure I get it right. Who asked uh, for that? Uh, Yitzchak. Thank you very much, uh, listener Yitzchak, asking on the app for that. Great programming continues all day long. We're here until nine o'clock this morning here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, coming up at 11 o'clock will be um, the live lunch encore with host Avrami. And at, at 1 o'clock, Saturday Night Siegel encore with host Avrami and the court report encore with Elliot Weiselberg at 7 p.m. Eastern Time tonight right here on the network with great music all in between. Uh, my thanks to Michael Kosowski of Herald PR in New York City for arranging this morning's interview. And uh, it's going to be very interesting, I feel. Uh, it is um, going to be, my guest this morning is Roman Schmulenson, Executive Director of Kojeko, which is the umbrella organization for the New York Russian-speaking Jewish community. Mr. Schmulenson, welcome to JM Sunday. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, and thank you for joining us this morning. Now, Kojeko, which, uh, if I have it correct, uh, it actually stands for the Council of Jewish Emigre Community Organizations, and therefore we're going to stick with Kojeko, <laughs> uh, is, is an umbrella organization, umbrella agency, which represents about 33 uh, other member organizations. What is the um, focus of Kojeko, and what do you do? So, Kajeka was created in 2001 to provide the united voice to the Russian-speaking Jewish community of New York. At the time, uh, about 26 groups, uh, grassroots Jewish initiatives, joined one organization to be heard and to be respected, and our voice to be presented in the American Jewish community. Uh, the groups unite uh, all kinds of organizations, starting from Holocaust survivors from the former Soviet Union, World War II veterans from the former Soviet Union, and youth organizations, uh, some religious organizations, some synagogues. And the idea was really to raise and distribute the money for these small groups uh, to offer quality services to our community. Now, you just said that uh, some of these groups are, are small, but when you talk about the uh, overall number of Russian-speaking Jews in the New York area, you must be talking about a very sizable number, some of who have been here uh, as, as families for many decades and some who are, are new. How many people do you think you uh, represent as a whole? 
that you are absolutely correct. So there were two major waves of immigration into the United States, uh, mostly in the late 70s and early 90s. According to our estimates and some studies conducted by the Jewish community of New York, there are about 230 to 300,000 Russian-speaking Jews just in New York alone. So we are talking about five boroughs of New York City and Long Island and Westchester. Wow, that is extremely sizable. a sizable community in, uh, in New Jersey. And uh, for the member organizations with uh, which you work, how many of those people do you think uh, are, are helped or affected or join or participate in one way or the other? Uh, what percentage do you do you have an idea about that or, or within the organization? We believe we believe that our programs and programs of our member organizations touch uh, close to forty thousand people. Wow! On an, on, a, on a yearly basis, uh, and uh, it's not a secret to any of us that most of the Russian-speaking Jews, given the history and experience in our old country, are not necessarily connected to the organized Jewish community. So uh, even with all of our efforts, you know, we are still we're still probably scratching the surface. You know, we we did not discuss the questions ahead of time, but I'm I'm, I'm laughing because the next question I was going to ask you, as I have written down here, is uh, is there still a feeling or even fear of not wanting to be part of an organized group because of the experiences of the past in terms of you know the Jewish experience in Russia? And you uh, you just answered that that it certainly is. Uh, and, and unfortunately, and we're not getting into any politics here, but unfortunately that's probably really ingrained in some people, even living here in the United States. That is unfortunately true. Uh, and you know, the Soviet Union, despite all the resentment that we had towards the system and the government, uh, did a good job uh, disconnecting us from the Jewish heritage and culture and tradition. At the same time, they didn't let us forget about it either. Right. It was, a str- it was a strange combination of not really knowing and not really doing anything about the Jewishness, yet being profoundly Jewish, profoundly pro-Israel, and having these burning feeling and feeling of pride in being Jewish. At the same time, when you come to the United States, you know, frankly, it would be naive to expect all these uh, people, to, all of us, you know, to run to the synagogues, to run to the Jewish organizations, given the experience that we had. Right, of course, and therefore it takes a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of money, um, and experienced people in knowing how to reach out uh, to those groups and to bring them in or, or give them whatever they need. It's not necessarily you know, just bringing them to the organization, but getting them what it is that they're looking for. Now, I'd like to talk about some of the member organizations, if you will. I know that some of them are religious in nature, like Chabad, certainly, uh, mm-hmm. and others are cultural, uh, and others are there to help people with things like housing. Uh, so the umbrella really covers a, a wide spectrum. Uh, and if you could talk about some of the uh, some of the organizations, then I, I would like to get... Uh, to the topic that Kojeko, even though it's, it's not a religious group as such, you have programs which, you know, just what we were talking about, give many of the people you serve their first taste of uh, Jewish ritual experience in a long time, possibly, you know, in generations for their family. So tell us about the organizations first, please. Uh, so, <clears throat> so one of the organizations I would like to focus on is the uh, Jewish Parents Academy. Right? So these are uh, young people. Uh, who were born in the Soviet
Soviet-Union and came to the United States as uh, kids or teenagers and now are forming their own families. And many of them are comfortable sending their kids to Jewish schools. However, when kids come home, they feel that uh, the parents are not able to reinforce the learning that is happening in school. Mm. So many parents are saying, look, we don't, we don't speak Hebrew. We did not grow up observant. Uh, so how, how can we help the kids with homework? Or how can we create an experience at home that will enhance you know, what's happening in school? So uh, a group of people got together and formed something called Jewish Parents Academy. So these are young people who are, for the most part, traditional, you know, uh, and, uh, and they get together regularly and they study. They do Jewish learning together in order to help, specifically help their kids maintain a meaningful Jewish lifestyle. It's a very interesting organization started in Brooklyn. And uh, it's growing. It's pro- proving to be very effective and successful. You know, that's uh, a, if I may. That, that's a very interesting concept because it, that that type of um, program uh, exists, and if it doesn't, it should in in many different areas of society, not just within the Russian Jewish community, of um, teaching parents to be able to help teach their children and and have that uh, unity in the family. That's that's a, an amazing concept. In our community, usually it goes the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parents are teaching the children. Uh, the children are teaching the parents. Right. Right. So it's uh, it's a quite unusual you know, situation. Uh, uh, then we can beyond we continue helping Holocaust survivors and World War II veterans. Unfortunately, every year there are less of them, but we wish them you know to 120 and uh, many years of health and happiness, and we make sure these people receive the dignity and support that they deserve. Right. You know, uh, people don't always know the history in, uh, in terms of the Holocaust uh, and, and vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. So it you know, sometimes comes as a surprise to, uh, to people who didn't really study that history. So this is extremely important because we may not realize the tie-in there. Well, uh, you know, um, most, of the, most of the Holocaust on the territory of the former Soviet Union uh, took place, what we say, on the outskirts of the little towns and villages. So many, many of our Holocaust survivors did not really get to concentration camps. You know, uh, many of their families were just shot on the outskirts of uh, these small towns, right. very often with the collaboration of local uh, population. Um, so, uh, you know, we have quite a significant number of Holocaust survivors living in New York City. Uh, many of them are you know, not, not necessarily struggling, but uh, you know, are just at or below the poverty line. So uh, uh, our community has, definitely has an obligation to these people, right? And, pre- and preserving their stories for the next generation. Of course, that's that's extremely important. Do you work with other organizations, not necessarily within the Russian Jewish community, on things like education or Holocaust uh, within the broader Jewish community? Absolutely, absolutely. So we work very closely with Self Help mm-hmm. and uh, and the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty. And so these are yeah, these are major major Jewish institutions, and we make sure that whenever we can help each other, uh, that happens. For example, these organizations are looking for Russian-speaking Jewish volunteers to serve their Russian-speaking Holocaust survivors. So we make sure that uh, you know young kids and families and teenagers and professionals 
uh, attend, attend the events, and uh, if there's home visiting or some group public events, uh, there are there is a significant presence of Russian-speaking volunteers, which makes huge difference for the Holocaust survivors. Sure, absolutely. Roman Schmolenson is the executive director of Kojeko, an umbrella organization for the New York Russian-speaking Jewish community, is my guest this morning. Um, as an umbrella organization, do you have a lot of contact with the individual people that are supported through the member organizations, or do you work mostly within the organizations as a whole? We, we actually do have a lot of contact with individuals. Very often, individuals would contact us Mm-hmm. Asking us to connect them to an appropriate to an appropriate organization. Uh, so, for example, we've received quite a number of phone calls and emails from people whose kids were approaching the age of 13 or 12 in the in case of girls, and they said, "Look, we don't really know what to do with our kids for their bar and bat mitzvah. We are not religious. We are not observant. We are not member of any congregation." Yet we don't just want a party in the restaurant, uh, which would be devo- which would be devoid of meaning. So, right. is there is there an organization uh, that would be able to provide us with a meaningful borrow but mitzvah experience? And uh, just a couple of years ago, we started a program called the Name Mitzvah Family Journey, and mm-hmm. the idea is to give the whole family an experience of preparing for this uh, for this life event. So we had 18 families. Obviously, the number 18 is very significant in the Jewish tradition. Right. So, so we had 18 families uh, who participated in a year-long journey. Uh, they studied. They studied with rabbis and Jewish educators, uh, both parents and kids. They had 10 Sunday sessions, and each family had a, a personal mentor that worked one-on-one with each family or with each teenager. Each family had to choose a meaningful mitzvah project that they worked on for a whole year, and they had to host and be hosted for a Shabbat dinner. Wow. Even if they've, even if they've never had a, a Shabbat dinner in their family, yeah, they said, look, we, you know, we want to try. So whether it followed all the rules and traditions, it was almost irrelevant to us at this starting point. It was important for us to set up the tradition in these families, to have Friday night Shabbat dinners, and then it's really up to them where they want to go with it. And uh, the whole program culminated with a beautiful ceremony in New York City uh, for the kids. Uh, you know, they were called up to the Torah. Uh, and uh, the entire group then went to Israel and had a ceremony uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. So for the, it, what's significant uh, is that this was the first bar or bus mitzvah for all 18 families in four generations. Wow. wow. Right? So we, we think of bar and bat mitzvah in America, you know, it, it, it happens all the time. Right. right. For all of the 18 families, it was the first one in four generations, which was quite, you know, quite uh, meaningful and sensitive. And, uh, you know, we all had the rock in our throat uh, and choking on tears of joy. Sure. It was quite, it was quite, Amazing. It it seems, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that from my limited experience with, with the Russian Jewish community, reading and seeing, and talking to some people, certainly Russian Jews are extremely proud of their heritage as Jews, um, and even second and third generation. Whereas here in the United States and other places, there would be a, a huge loss of that cultural identity. 
Uh, and maybe it's because of what you know you said before about how the Soviet the Union, uh, you know, blocked it out and prevented it. That even second, third generation, uh, there is that still very strong identity. Maybe not practice yet, but that's there, and it's it's um, relatively easy to bring them into a uh, you know program such as the B'nai Mitzvah. Is that am I correct on that? That they're you know very proud of the heritage that is maintained I, I, generation after generation. I think you're correct. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, my my parents always told me, you know, you can't really undo yourself, <laughs> you know, which, which, which was, you know, we kept laughing at it. But but that was the truth. No matter what happened to us, even if we were completely disconnected from culture and tradition, there was always a sense of pride and dignity uh, in our families. Right. So it's a mistake to be, it's a mistake to think that uh, uh, Russian-speaking Jews are a blank slate. Tabula rasa, right. uh, who do not really have the Jewish identity and Jewish knowledge, and therefore have to be taught. So, um, you know, uh, there's, there's certainly something there. Uh, very often it's the feeling, it's the emotion of pride uh, to belong to Jewish people. Uh, we, do, we do have to worry about the next generation because, um, you know, the feeling is very hardly transferable. We feel very proud of being Jewish. How do we instill that feeling in our children without doing anything or without learning anything? Right. Right? So we have to make sure that our children and our grandchildren are also you know, belong, belonging to Jewish people and are proud of it. But the only way to achieve that is to give them positive, meaningful Jewish experiences and education. And uh, I, I think um, I want to tap into your knowledge of, of Russian uh, Jewish history it, based on what you just said, because most people might think of you know, Russian Jews coming from uh, Moscow, Leningrad in those days, back to St. Petersburg now, um, and and those in the United States who heard about you know, the Russian Jewish experience and, and being able to get out of Russia— you know, may think along those lines, but we're talking about a vast geographical area encompassing very diverse groups within the, the Jewish groups, including, uh, if I pronounce it properly, the Bukharain community. Uh, I did a little research here for the interview today for our discussion. And mountain Jews, who I, I you know, forgot about, once once learned about, have, have history going back 1,500 years uh, their primary language wasn't even Russia back then. They came from Persia, you know, original yeah, yeah. maybe ten lost tribes. So we're talking about all those groups. You have a a mountain group in in the United States and the Ukraine community. So within the the Russian whole, you, you have those groups which want to maintain their culture generation after generation. And and you have some groups within your organization that kind of tailors to those groups. You are absolutely correct. Uh, you know, it was huge, huge uh, country, and uh, this, there was really no sense of community at the time. Uh, Buharian Jews do come from Uzbekistan and parts of Central Asia. Uh, they were able to preserve some of their culture. But they, the, the tendency is the farther the cities were from Moscow and Leningrad, the more likely they were to preserve some culture and tradition. Right. So, for example, in the Baltic states or in Moldova, um, there are there were many families and communities who were observant and who were able to preserve some culture and traditions. Uh, the closer you were to Moscow, you know, more assimilated and less knowledgeable people were, for obvious reasons. 
Right. Uh, here in New York, you know, even when we were forming the organization, the question was, are we really Russian? Right? We, we, we say Russian Jewish community, but the truth is these are Ukrainian Jews, Georgian Jews, Uzbeki Jews. So, therefore, we stuck with the term Russian speaking because that is really the unifying factor. We all speak Russian. Uh, however, the culture and traditions are somewhat different. And uh, uniting such a big community is not an easy process. And uh, the, the goal is really to respect and maintain the autonomy and the independence of each member organization and to give them the support they need to flourish. Right. Uh, the, goal is, the goal is one diverse and vibrant Jewish community of New York while preserving the unique cultural heritage and history of each community. Right, exactly. Uh, there's also a program that you have that I'd like you to talk about for a minute before we finish up, the Blueprint Fellowship. What is that all about? So Blueprint Fellowship is kind of a startup. Just yeah. like in business, when uh, people with innovative ideas have a chance to uh, build up and start their own business, we give a small grant and a fellowship opportunity to young adults ages 25 to 40 in the Russian-speaking Jewish community to develop their own community project. So this is not about making money. None of the fellows are getting paid, but they get a little bit of funding and support uh, to develop their community idea. So any person can come to Kajeko and say, I think I can do this, and this will engage at least 50 community members in a meaningful Jewish experience. So we have artists, we have musicians, we have Jewish educators coming to us with all kinds of ideas. Uh, to date, we have had 128 projects. Wow. And each project engages at least 50, but mostly 100 and more people. Uh, they are in the fellowship for about a year. They talk about Jewish identity, Jewish culture, Jewish history, but also about very technical things like how to fundraise for your projects how to reach the participants for your project, how to make sure that it continues beyond the year of the fellowship. And I'm proud to say that about 40% of all the projects are continuing beyond the year of the fellowships. Some of them become independent nonprofit organizations. Others become the projects of uh, mainstream Jewish community organizations. So just to give you a few examples, we have a young lady who is offering programs Russian-speaking Jewish families on Long Island. Mm -hmm. She, her husband is a doctor. They moved to Long Island. They felt that there was no Jewish organization that really met their needs. So they started an organization of their own. And now, more than five years later, since her participation in the fellowship, there are more than 100 Jewish families that are part of that community. And they're going strong. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Now, it takes, as you mentioned, a lot of volunteers sure it takes a lot of money, a lot of support. Uh, how could people uh, get involved in any of the, uh, in either your organization or the individual organizations or support your organizations? How would they best do that? How would they best get in touch with you? So we always welcome uh, the engagement of people in our organizations, in our community. Our website is www.kajeco.org, C-O-J-E-C-O dot O-R-G. Uh, there is information on getting involved, either by volunteering or by supporting us financially. We always welcome that and uh, never take it for granted. Uh, and uh, 
do you have to be Russian speaking to be able to help Russian speaking Jews? Of course not. <laughs> ah, that, that is absolutely uh, beautiful. Uh, well, uh, I, I thank you for, you know, we could probably talk a lot more on this because I'm, I'm fascinated by history also, uh, you know, but our time is limited. So I, I want to thank you for joining me this morning and um, and talking about your organization, Kojeko, and uh, about the, the life of uh, Russian Jews here in the United States, especially in the New York area, uh, and wish you continued success. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome, and uh, we'll we'll keep in touch. We'll find out what is uh, what has been going on in the community as time progresses. Thank you. You're welcome, uh, Roman Schmulensen, who's the executive director of uh, Kojeko, a wonderful organization that is an umbrella organization for a Russian Jewish community, the Russian Jewish community in New York area and somewhat beyond. I want to thank again Michael Kosowski of Herald PR in New York City for arranging this morning's interview. A wonderful guest, and I thank him for that. And everybody over there, Michael and Judah and the whole gang over there, thank you. And we're going to go back to uh, a little bit of music. I was actually trying to find some Russian Jewish music, and I couldn't find it in time. So I apologize about that. But uh, we'll hear from Navshenu here on JM Sunday.
My thanks again to Roman Schmulinson of uh, Kojeko for joining me this morning to talk about the Russian Jewish community and what his organization does. Thanks, everyone, for listening this morning here on JM Sunday. Hope you have a great day. Don't forget, great programming continues all day long on the network. Nachum will be on tomorrow morning, followed by the Israel Show. We'll see you next week right here on JM Sunday.